Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. Well, today I am thrilled and not a little bit excited, I have to say, to be able to bring you a conversation I had some time ago with Glyn Harrison. In his professional life, Glyn was professor and head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Bristol, where he was also a practicing psychiatrist for many years. He is a past president of the International Federation of Psychiatric Epidemiology and has acted as an advisor to the WHO. Since retiring from professional life, he's a regular speaker and trainer for churches and universities, speaking about Christian faith in relation to psychology, neuroscience and mental health. Glyn's also the author of a couple of books, ones that made a big impact on me in the past year, which is what led me really to take a bold pun and reach out to him for today's conversation. I was so thrilled that he said yes. His books are A Better Story, a book on sex and human flourishing that engages with the impact of the sexual revolution and the response of the church. And his other book, The Big Ego Trip, subtitled Finding True Significance in a Culture of Self-Esteem. Glyn and I discussed the self-esteem movement along with its impact on the church and how it seemingly has failed to deliver what it promised, as well as then going on to consider how the gospel can help us. I hope this conversation helps you in the way you think through the culture wars and the ideas out there. Now, more information about Glyn and links to his books can be found in the description of today's episode. But with all of that said and done, and hopefully whet your appetite and built some level of expectation, here we go. Enjoy. Yes, thank you. Great to be here as well. Um, <laughs> well, Glyn, your um, your books, I came across them last year, and I have to say they've done me so much good. So I think I reached out to you with a very um, flattering email. So I was so gracious for you. Yeah, it always for you works replying. with me, Jazz. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I mean, they both made a huge impact on me. And if people haven't read them, they need to get out and read the books now. Um, they're outstanding. Partly because I just think your your breadth of um, comprehensive understanding of the the subject matters that you're engaging with, your ability to go back into the past and help people, I always think help people to identify the wetness of the water that we swim in, understand the culture and climate that we're in is such an invaluable gift. Um, so thank you so much for all the work that you did in writing those books. They're just, they're packed full of not just um, philosophy and psychology, but also pop culture as well. So you're, you're down with the kids as well as with the props. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> it's a long way down, actually. I stooped back to be down with the kids now, you know, at my rap old age. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Glenn, um, we're going to be talking about this book largely, The Big Ego Trip. And before we get into the, the kind of the details of, of what you, you outline in this book, why don't you just um, help us understand what made you write this book in the first place? Yeah, um, thank you, Jed. Well, it's great, great to be here. And, uh, you know, this is a huge um, subject. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the way I attempt to um, bring in different perspectives. And that partly, I, I think, or maybe mostly comes from my experience as, as a psychiatrist, because one of the things you, you realize that you have to do in psychiatry really quite early on in your training is you've got to integrate different perspectives. Uh, you, you know, on the one level, I mean, I mean, take someone, uh, a 65 year old man who's, who's depressed, you know, the question is, why is he depressed? And 
you discover that his father had a severe depression and you say, ah, oh, genetics are playing a part here. But then you discover that his mother died when he was five. And we know that people who suffer severe losses early on also um, are vulnerable to depression late, later on. Uh, and, and then you, you learn that um, he lost his job or he retired recently and much of his sense of self was invested in, in his position as a company director and all that's gone mm. and that sense of grieving. So that's clearly a factor. And, and then you learn that, that, that he's a Christian, but he's a Christian who has pushed his faith to one side over many years. He's gone through the motions, but his heart hasn't been there. His wife and kids kept the, the home going in a Christian sense, in a way. And all of his sense of self was invested in his status at work. And now when all that's collapsed, he's facing some big spiritual questions before God. So you've got those four, you know, genetics, early experience, current life events, and a profound spiritual dimension are all playing some part in understanding that person's experience. And what people always want you to do is to, is to focus on the one thing that, that, that really matters. And you cannot deal with, with, you can't do justice to the human condition in that one thing approach. We're always a, a collection of factors which are weaving together to produce the thing we're struggling with. Mm -hmm. So I, I always say, don't, don't you know, worry about finding the one thing. Um, do what you do, what needs doing and attending to in those different areas. So there's a biological factor, an antidepressant may well help, but it isn't the whole story. It may actually just help open the person up to looking at some of those life events. And just because a counsellor maybe is helping someone understand the process of grieving and coming to terms with life's mm. changes doesn't mean that the pastor as well doesn't have a key role in helping that person re-establish what the business they need, rather to do the business they need to do with their God mm. and Lord. And so all of those things, they're not in competition. They are actually you know they, they can work 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 together well, you touched on something that i really appreciated about the book and that was toward the end um i think when you drawn a lot of these threads together you made the comment there's no quick fix you know yeah. psychology offers a quick fill or psychological speak can seem to suggest this is a quick solution do this believe these repeat yeah. these words you'll feel fine but then you also said and if we're honest christianity is not a quick fix either and i thought yeah. i just as I, I read that i thought oh thank goodness like because we do i think live live with a weight of if i'm not fixed quickly by christ then maybe i'm doing something wrong maybe i'm not praying the prayer we turn prayer into a spell and we think maybe i'm not saying the spell properly um, mm. and i think just to be able to acknowledge no no you know as you just did we're complex creatures but you do that without becoming a relativist you know and saying exactly. oh there's so many perspectives there's no truth you know just believe exactly. whatever you want yeah we don't want to go down that road because it's the road to despair <laughs> um, um, uh, and 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 there is a discomfort in this what you might call multiple multi-perspective multi-perspectival approach to our humanity and in that it doesn't sell books so well when you're saying well it's a little bit of several that the root oh and i think you're, you're yeah. touching on something you're touching on something there that we could go straight into that rabbit hole but before we do that why don't we um 
when we back up because I think what you have to say about the rise of what you call the self-esteem movement and boosterism that the solution to your problems in life or the solution to society's ills is poor self-esteem and we need to do all that we can to boost people's sense of self-esteem that's a, a large part of your your book here and how that's then infected the church and shaped the way we think about so many things um mm. dig help us dig back into the recent past and discover where does a fascination and fixation with self-esteem and self-worth come from um, self-esteem is our the subjective our subjective sense of our own worth and uh the reason I think that psychology has always struggled to, to, to really give an answer here that's compelling uh, is, is this is a profoundly spiritual, existential, meaning of life question. And psychology, psychological sciences can never mm. properly provide the answer mm. to that. And so like everybody else, I've always struggled with that question well what is my worth on a on a, a clear night looking up to the stars you know who who am i what what what's my significance and and what frame of reference do i have that might help me answer that question are, mm. are there answers out there or is the answer in here but i, I think it was intensified for me as a kid because um and again, I've I've met many pastors who've who've journeyed something along this direction, but I was kind of scripted to be special, and that partly came from the fact that my parents thought they'd never have a kid. You you know, my mother had a heart condition, and she was told you you'll never have children. Um, and then they they, my mother did get pregnant. They were a very young Christian couple. And they were thrilled and she got pregnant and that first uh, child was still born and they were going to call him mm. Glyn. Mm. And they said, there you go. You'll never. And um, and they said, well, that is it. Now you can. And then they got pregnant again. And then eventually another little boy comes along and they call him Glyn. Um, and he's very special, you, you know, unexpected, special. Um, and I, I, I was always uh, aware of that sense of. Um, and I heard as a child, one or two, you know, I think the Lord's got his hand on Glenn. And um, and I, I was talking to a pastor recently. We, we were saying how uh, for those that, that do become pastors, that there's plenty in the scripture as we look to people that God laid his hand on uh, to fuel that sense of destiny, of being called to something great. And because I had, you know, I had a confidence of, about me to some extent as a kid, very working class background. And I was the first kid with the opportunity maybe to get to university. No one had been to university in my family. Mm. No one really knew about that whole world. And the idea of being a doctor was just stratospheric in terms of another world that, that one was entering. But this all played into the script of specialness. And... Uh, if you're scripted in that way, and and that's 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 the show, um, you are going to have to work pretty hard to to satisfy that, to play that role consistently, mm. because another part of you knows it's not true. It's not you're not all that special. Uh, as you get to university, you quickly meet others mm. who are, are more special than 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 you, than you and more gifted than you. 
and as a Christian, you know your own heart. And there's always that struggle with the inner reality and this desire that the world has around you to, for you to, to stand out and stand above and mm. uh, be that special. So it's always been a bit of a, a struggle for me, as I think it is for many pastors. And so um, I kind of, when I, when I retired, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll dig into it some more. And, um, and through my professional career, although self-esteem has a great following in the in the secular world, mainly through what we'd call pop psychology, actually in counseling, professional counseling, therapy, and certainly psychiatric practice, it has a much more checkered history mm. because people are always struggling with the question of how do we really define it? What, what exactly is it? And, and as psychologists have looked more into it, uh, whether, whether this boosting self-esteem works or not has, has always been a, a mm. big problem. So, well, and I think, as yeah. you point out in your book, there's evidence that suggests it may work, but it doesn't necessarily produce the results that we wanted as we perhaps will come on to talk about the, the narcissism epidemic that um, seems to be you know, gaining traction still on a popular level, even in our day. Um, yeah. And, and, and in a way, the, the idea of, of self-esteem and boosting it as being some kind of solution, it, is, it has a lot of face validity. In other words, on the face of it, that, that seems to make sense. And, and it's, a, it's a really worthy and noble thing, I, I, I think. But, mm. uh, look, on, the reason being that, that actually low self-worth, this just uh, evaluating yourself as not worthy compared to other people of happiness of being accepted in the same way uh, of lacking confidence to do things in life um, that having that having a low sense of worth does correlate with poor psychological outcomes and having a stronger sense of your own worth correlates with better in education mental health criminality substance abuse it, it's all there. And because of that correlation, people made the error then of thinking, well, correlations, causation. Yes. And if, if, if low self-esteem is what's causing this, this is the underlying problem, which is always seductive. Ah, we're at the underlying problem now. Then boosting self-esteem, if low self-esteem is the, the, the problem, boosting self-esteem is the solution. So mm. let's get people to boost themselves. And um, mm. it sounds, sounds great, doesn't yeah, it? I you like um, the illustration you use in your book of mistaking causation with um, correlation. Um, the example of writing your book at your desk, um, that you write your book often, you, when you sit down at your desk, you write your book, but the two aren't necessarily, um, one does not necessarily cause the other. Uh, and that, yeah. I, yeah, my that desk doesn't cause me to write my book, but it's always here. Yeah. <laughs> There's a 100% correlation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's really interesting. I mean, as you're, as you're speaking, I imagine there's probably a number of people who are hearing what you said, wanting to chip in saying, but yes, we are special. The Bible does say we're special. We are, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly and wonderfully made, fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't I? And people, because perhaps we've been so 
cultured to think like that and trained to think like that. We read the scriptures through that lens. And sure enough, there's plenty in there, if that's what we're looking for, that affirms our own specialness you know we mm. we among all that's the creatures point. on the planet are made in yeah. the image and likeness of god but yeah it's not the emphasis of the scriptures like it's perhaps the emphasis of teaching i think you, you quoted some books or the, i love the title of one of your chapters to god your big stuff and that really resonates mm. with this you know you are again it's a, it's a bible verse the apple of god's eye which is true mm. but the emphasis here isn't on our specialness but on god's out, outlandish extravagant love and devotion towards the people but we have almost mm. disconnected it and gone wow with the apple of god's eye we must be big stuff um yeah, talk to us a bit about yeah a bit about no, that well i i think that's a great great point and uh i think the problem is that we use the word special um in terms of uh to mean special means to stand out to stand above we we tend to to use it in in a um, in, in the sense of social comparison, and the and the Bible never speaks of our glory, our beauty as as those loved by God and being restored in His image, you know, and the glory and the beauty of that and being fearfully and wonderfully made, even as broken, fallen creatures. There's a, a fearfulness about us, so we are unique. We are. Um, special in the sense of the profound beauty of, of what God has made us and is remaking us. Uh, but that doesn't make us more important than anybody else. We're unique, but we don't stand above others. Um, and, and I think that's the problem with the way the world uses this term special. They use it in its social comparison sense. I'm special. I stand out. I stand above. I'd want to say, no, 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 you're no, no more special than anybody else in, in that sense. But you are unique. You are beautiful and glorious, and loved by God to the ends of the earth. And um, that love is non-contingent. It is totally there, whatever you do, whatever you, however you mess up, it's always there. Mm. You'll never have to earn that. And that is a profound foundation for my sense of self that isn't a treadmill because the problem with the special as a social comparison sense is you're constantly having to having to ensure that this is true you know so is it really so, so hang on a minute i i that no one's taking notes of me here so i i need to, i need to make myself more so you're on this treadmill of constant testing and evaluate is this is this really true and it, you've got to work hard to stay up there mm. in god's economy you are unique accepted loved you don't have to work for that and it's the basis for going into the world and making something of the world in his image mm. whereas being special you're going into the world and making something of your life becomes the basis on which your specialness comes to depend mm. you know and so it's a it's a different it's a very different yeah i love the specialness. Um, i love the the term that you use um uh, you, you talk about how we we too often globalize our identity because i am good at this it therefore I globalize that and it becomes my identity do you want to explain that concept to us oh do you know that is so important i i think to get to get this um what what we 
what we tend to do is is because we're infected with this um, uh, with this uh, instruction, this sense of need to prove ourselves. You, you know that that um, that that somehow our our validity as human beings hangs on how well we perform. We tend, therefore, when we perform well, to you know, I, I am as special as, as I hoped uh, I am, or, or yes, I am worthy because you know they they like what I what I did, and so there's there's that sense of treadmill once again. You're constantly, um, and and I think what I what I try to help people do is try and draw a distinction between rating or scoring or evaluating something that you do and yourself as a unique human being blessed in, in the image of God. Um, d- don't make your sense of who you are depend on, on that, that thing. So let's say you're, you're, a, you're a superb footballer and, and you score the goals and you get the adulation of, of the crowd. What, what you can do in this way of thinking about yourself, and it's basically Paul teaching about a sober evaluation of, of one's gifts. What, what you can do is you say, actually, I think I'm a really good footballer. Or, or you may be able to say, Jess, you know, I think I'm, there, are, there are areas of my pastoral care for people. And I think I'm good at it. I think I'm good at it or, or of my preaching or whatever I do, or as a, as a husband or a brother mm. or all of those things. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I, that was good. I did that well. I can feel blessed in, in that. Um, and it's a real gifting, and I see some real fruit of, of that gift. So, yes, I can do that. It doesn't make me a more important person, though. It doesn't alter my specialness or my uniqueness. It grows out of my uniqueness. It, mm. it, it isn't the basis of my uniqueness. But you take a little boy who's with his granny, uh, and, uh, and you have the opportunity to say that little, little boy, um, you you know um, you know whatever the gifts you, God's given or whatever you're good at, um, you know if you're good at it, think yeah I'm good at this. Be confident in in your gifting, but it doesn't make you any more important than the other little boy who hasn't got that gifting, but maybe better at something else. If you can practice saying that as a eight year old, nine year old, ten year old, you know I I'm really good at that, but it doesn't make me more important then that can stand you in huge stead for the rest of your life. And, and then you overhear that little boy later playing his granny um, at, at some game, let's call it Uno. And, um, and, uh, and granny says, I think you're cheating. You're, beating, you're, you're, you're winning every time here. This is crazy. And he said, no, no, I'm really good at you know, Granny, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm peerless. Well, he wouldn't say that, but you know, um, but it just doesn't make me any more important than anybody else. Now, in a way, he's parroting what what he said, but if that could seep into his soul, mm. you know, you can be good at something. And so, if someone says to you, Jez, you know, that was really helpful that talk. Now, thanks ever so much. It really, God spoke, and you know, you you don't have to say, oh, it wasn't me; it was the Lord. You you know. Because actually, it wasn't that good. Um, 
you know, it wasn't the Lord. It, it was you, Jess. Mm. You, you, you put the work into that talk. You did it. You did it in God's strength, in his power, all of those. But you did it. And you can own that sense of having work for God's kingdom. And, and there's something out there for which one day you receive his favor and mm. his well done, good and faithful servant. You don't have to pretend it's not yours or it's not mine, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, if you can link that, after, I always say, if someone says that was really good, I, I think, well, I think it was, if, if I think it yeah. was. Uh, but it just doesn't make me, they don't know how I treated my wife mm. yesterday. They don't know the other bits of me. So it doesn't make me any more important or it doesn't raise me up any higher. Than anybody else, and that's um, really important because I mean we all yeah. know the we all know the experience of of preaching badly. <laughs> I say we all know. I hope we do. Do we? we? If we're preachers, we know the experience of doing something that doesn't go as well as we hoped, and then being crushed afterwards and thinking, "I want the ground to swallow me up. I wish I never did this. I feel like a complete yeah. failure. I want to run a mile." Um, and often, you know, that I'm thinking that while I'm preaching. <laughs> and that's mm. in part because the gifting has become too globalized. It's become too much a part of who I am and my value and my contribution to the world is in this 30 minute moment. And if it goes yeah. badly, then what have I got? What else have I got? Or if my child does not respect me or present our family well um, to the school or whatever then who are we we are nothing and so that's a an indication that some globalizing has gone on that this attributes become more than just that i think that's really helpful oh brilliant and and what what you and i think what we're recognizing here jess this is a lifelong struggle i i'm not saying that you just need to think this and there you are you know um, yeah, you're offering your one way, your one solution. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Sell the paperback. Yeah, but that, but that, I do think it's a it's a kind of a cognitive technique. You 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 know, if you do something well or if you do something badly, you say, well, you know, there's a strength or there's a weakness, maybe, or there's something I need to work harder at, maybe. Mm. But that is not the basis on which I rest my whole sense of being blessed as a as someone who bears the image of god you've got to keep practicing that i practice it still because there's a deep struggle within our souls i think it goes back to when the devil uh sorry when the serpent in in the garden says you know the lie he whispers to eve is you shall be as gods you shall be as gods and all of us we you know we struggle with this this conflict this desire to be godlike mm to stand above, to rise up. Um, mm. And, um, and well, we're I always thought, looking in the wrong places for that. You know? What I thought was really interesting as well in, your, in the, the sources that you quote from in the book is the amount of academics or philosophers, psychologists, who seem to arrive at a very biblical understanding of original sin and the fallenness of human nature, but without using the revelation of scripture. Um, do, you know what, do you know what I'm referring to in that? Um, well, yes, um, in, in that the diagnosis um, of, our, of our human condition that the scripture gives has, you know, it resonates with our lived experience. You, mm. I, was it Cheston, I think, who said, you know, one of the greatest uh, evidences of the Christian faith is original. It's doctrine of original sin. You don't have to look too far mm. in your experience within and of the world outside to see that doctrine mm. and um in many ways I, I i think people who are honest in their self-reflection um 
see that. There's something broken and distorted about that, our humanness. Mm, and what I think the, the globalizing um, speaks to as well that I remember picking up from your book again was perhaps linked to the self-esteemism if you're constant if your emphasis is on boosting self-esteem to convince someone of their specialness in social comparative terms then what that means is there's a tendency to to cause others to globalize by the way you praise them you know so you i think you use the example of a child doing something well in maths and you going wow future einstein and in doing that you put a whole bucket load of pressure on them to not be anything other than the future einstein which actually makes it harder for them to take the same risks in learning uh, that they need to do in order to cultivate the resilience that's required and I think I picked up from that now when my kid goes to school because he hates failing so I always grab him by the face and I say today I want you to fail I want you to get stuff wrong and ask for help because they won't do it otherwise because he's so afraid you know I don't know where he's picked it up from um, yeah but he's so afraid that he is special and he's special and it's going to be proved by what he does and so that puts that whole uh... kind of pressure on and um, you yeah so yeah, this is the work. Hard. This is work of Carol Dweck um, in 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 the way to praise kids and and exactly as you say, she she found that if if you praise um, status, you're you're an answer. Um, you, and it was it was grounded particularly in 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 the idea of IQ. You know, you're brilliant. Then you have burdened kids with um, uh, with having to prove that. And and so it, she showed rather rather nicely that that kids who've been praised in this way, um, if if you then give them a series of tests, but give them a choice between an easier test and a more difficult one, the kids who've been praised in this in this way that elevates the, their status, their intelligent, you are intelligent. They're faced with a series of tests. They'll, if given the choice, choose the easier ones because they that will is the sure way to confirm the status and avoid the tougher ones now what we want to do is we want our kids as you say jess to to be resilient kids who can bounce back and and who aren't so obsessed with their own keeping up their own specialness or being intelligent or being brilliant or being an ant or whatever and not so obsessed with having to keep that up that they they don't want to go out and make mistakes and go out and make something of the world through making mistakes and by learning. And you, you, I think that's a great, you know, gift is, is we help mm. learning to fail well is, is a, a key milestone. Mm. I think mm. of healthy psychological development that most of us skip mm. or are encouraged to skip. But I used to run a men's ministry and one of our, I said, one of our slogans is failing our way to success. Hmm. You know, let's keep failing guys. Cause he failing means you're trying and uh, we, yeah. That's great. So what would be a healthier way to praise, not just a child, but someone that you're wanting to encourage? Is it you play, you praise effort. You know, you, you, you say you, I love them. You, you, you really work, work harder at that or you didn't let that get you down because you, you saw that uh, in the big scheme of things being a violin player uh if that isn't you that isn't you and just because mm -hmm. there are a number of other violin players they're they're brilliant at at, at it mm -hmm. so it, it looks at well that's great because you saw that life isn't all about violin players mm -hmm. and uh and look at look at how well you you worked at this and you mm -hmm. work so keep praising it 
keep the focus on effort. That's yeah. great. Thank you. Um, well, Glyn, I'd love to, um, I know it's not directly linked to what we've just been talking about, but one of the things that you point out is, um, well, I, you said that, you even just said it earlier, actually, that psychiatrists and psychologists have mixed feelings about self-esteem. And uh, you said that although it became quite popular, I think in academic circles, maybe in the, in the 70s, uh, it, it soon fell out of favour as people realised that it wasn't the, the silver bullet. But by that time, it had reached a cultural tipping point such yeah. that people, we latched onto it, perhaps, you know, in line with what you shared, perhaps because it, it speaks to that part of us that wants to be like God. So if we're told you are like God, then that perhaps is why yeah. it's, it's grabbed such cultural traction. Um, but you, you said that one of the, what we're noticing is that one of the unintended consequences of this is a rising case rising cases of narcissistic personality disorder and mm -hmm. that was um that was a painful read when i read that part and you identified exactly what narcissistic personality disorder was because i thought that sounds a lot like me <laughs> um it was scary and then you know very re refreshing or helpfully you said don't worry if you spotted signs of yourself in that we're all on the spectrum somewhere but could you if i don't know if you've got that in your mind to hand um give us a kind of overview of what some of the traits of narcissistic personality disorder are why it's a problem and uh yeah and why we why you think we should be concerned as a society and churches about it yeah um well it, it's probably um better to to think about narcissistic personality type uh, and for technical reasons that we probably wouldn't be very valuable to go there let think about uh, uh, fast features of, of the of the personality type and yeah as, as you say a psychologist called Jean Twang she's done some really rather elegant work showing how mostly amongst college students, scores on something called the MPI, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, which maps these traits, have been going up over the past 30 years, 40 years now. And she links that to this obsession with boosting ourselves and this absorption with ourselves. And she's saying this is one of the unintended consequences. Now, you've got to remember that correlation doesn't mean causation so just because narcissism has gone up as boosterism has gained traction in culture doesn't really you can't prove that the one causes okay. the other and it's hard actually to think of a, a kind of an experiment that you could set up to to do that well but it, again it, it's a plausible hypothesis uh, which has a, has a great deal going for it and it's worth thinking about and reflecting on even if we can't pin it down in a series of, of, of studies and, and it does relate to to a number of other actually studies on which show a similar thing i mean for example it, it all goes down to the effort needed to maintain an idealized view of yourself i'm special i'm worthy i attract people to myself like magnets you, you know this kind of thing um, the effort you, you, you need to put into that um, has a number of unintended consequences. Uh, the psychologist called Jennifer Crocker, for example, showed that empathy reduces when, when people who have high self-esteem and a high need to maintain that um, have reduced empathy. And again, it, it's plausible. You can see why, because you're putting so much effort into thinking about me. 
that you don't have time for anybody else. Um, and Gene Twang, similarly with uh, narcissism, that you develop this idealized view of yourself and you put so much effort into maintaining it that with narcissism, you can begin to pay selective attention to your environment so that you only see the things that do confirm it and not mm. the things that don't. And, th and that's the feature of, of the narcissist. You know, they, they, they're, they're putting so much effort into maintaining this idealized, rather um, beautiful view of themselves that they airbrush out all that's around them that doesn't mm. fit that. And, and one can think of well-known politicians where this is, you know, um, a, a feature, has been a feature, particularly in the United States, of the way that they relate to the world. They don't see the stuff that puts them in a bad light. The terror of this is that after a while, you really don't see it. You know, it, you mm. don't see it. It's a mental state that you've nurtured yourself into. Um, and um, the worry is that this is becoming not at the level of narcissistic personality disorder, but at the level of, of increasing traits being seen in our, in our society, um, that's becoming more, more widespread. Mm. And um, yeah. Use the phrase there that you can nurture yourself into it. Uh, is that something that can go on then? You, through a lot of the, the slogans and phrases that we repeat as a kind of mantra about our specialness and our value that can have that un unintended consequence, you said, of nurturing. It's quite a, it's like a, a massaging of the ego yeah. into this place of, I'm, you know, I only see things that put me in a positive light. Well, you know, that is one of the great uh, dangers of, of life. We, we become what we choose. The choices we, we make as, as we practice and rehearse, for, first we will not see and then we cannot see. Um, and, and we're blinded by the choices we make. And we see that in scripture, don't we? But, but, it, but it has a, also a, that idea has a good psychological track record in, in the work of Freud and, and others that, right. that you can so attend to a way of looking at the world, so nurture practice it, that that's all that after a while you, you see. And, and you could see that um, in the hardening of heart. Mm. The hardening of the heart is, you know, that great pulses they, we receive in our own personalities. The, mm. The consequences of, of the lives we, we live. And um, this is a, a slightly frightening. Mm. Um, well, I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it's linked to, I guess, the, the Christian discipline of confessing your sin to one another and the importance perhaps of accountability partnerships of some kind. Oh. But, but even that can become a little bit too um, formalized. Whereas I think you know, one of the gifts of marriage, say, is that you're living with someone that you're constantly contending with. And they're, you know, in a healthy marriage, <laughs> there's a healthy amount of disagreement that, can, that goes on yeah. that over a lifetime should knock off some of my edges. But equally, I think outside of the marriage context, there's the community of the church, the people of God that we're part of. And I think 
and this might be drawing from your other book on sexuality, but you point out that in society, we've got this situation where we've, we've lost this kind of middle le level community um, where we've kind of got our big institutions and we've got our you know close friends, but then there's this other group of people that we're supposed to be around that are very different from us. And we wouldn't necessarily always choose to be with them, but we are there and they are there and they're helping heal parts of us that aren't good. And uh, so I guess it, I suppose what comes, that's what comes to my mind, at least the, the need for a range of different relationships, but certainly relationships with people who are different from us and who disagree with us regularly enough to stop us getting further and further down this, this tunnel of narcissism. Would you say that's fair? Oh, Jess, that is just a great, you know my book better than <laughs> I do. I, that's from the second one, I, I think that, in, that institutional thing. Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, no, I, I, but, but this is such a profound, important point, I think. Um, and obviously, you've you've got a good wife. You're, you're <laughs> speaking from the heart there. <laughs> but I, I do think that is a sign of a healthy marriage. You, you know, um, I I do remember I was sitting on an aeroplane once, and uh, and um, I, I went to the loo and and you know got out of out of the row, and just as I did, the guy in front of me went to the loo as well, and and he got there first. And then when I came back, he, he'd already taken his seat. And my wife said to me, she said, do you know what I just overheard? She said, once that guy went to the, the toilet ahead of you, his wife turned to the woman on the other side who was a stranger. But he just pushed past her, you see, to get out. She said, my husband, she said, he's a wonderful man. And she told me, she, you know, her husband was a surgeon. And this phrase, a wonderful man. And, uh, and he was about my age. And Louise, uh, my wife, said, um, she said to me, you know, a wonderful man. She said, could you ever imagine me saying somebody that about you? you <laughs> and the way she said it, I was a bit downhearted, actually. You know, she <laughs> had this laugh as if you're a wonderful man. And, um, <laughs> and I think that's a, a something for which we ought to be really grateful um, yeah, I mean, it can go too far. I often have to tell tell my well, wife, just say nice things about my sermon, please. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It, it can go too far. Um, but many, many marriages, and there is this healthy thing. You say, look, we're in a team. We're, we're, we're in this together. Um, and I've even heard that phrase, it, it's you and me against the world. It's us against the mm. world. And, it, and it's a phrase that you want to use to build that sense of we're working together on this. There is a danger, however, that that can lead, rather than a wife being a critical friend, to being a co-conspirator in your delusions. Mm, and wow. you do see that. I, I've seen it with, with pastors, clergy, wow. where they're not seeing a big part of, you know, some of the issue mm. in their church right now and the way it's to do with them. They're not seeing it. And their wife, instead of being the person who grounds them and takes them home and says, look, you need to hear what people are saying, joins with them in strengthening the, you know. So, yes, that is really important, but it needs to be a, a healthy, you know, relationship, mm. Jess. Um, and, you, you know, absolutely with you on that. But it's a key issue. Who speaks into the life of the pastor? I, I get, I've been so many pastors conferences and I, I say look this, this talk has one simple message who is shepherding the shepherds who no, no it's more important who's pastoring you 
and it doesn't have to be just one person, but where, where are the relationships in which people say, you know, you're taught, you, I, I, I love what you say, but as you're getting older, you might want to say this to me any minute, Jess. You're talking too much. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you're clearly getting to like the sound of your own, to, of your own voice. Mm. And um, you need, or, or have you noticed you don't listen to people so well anymore? It's the little mm. things like that. Funnily enough, I mean, yes, in pastoral ministry, that there are the big issues of sex and money, but the things that get pastors into trouble a lot of the time are those quirks of personality that, that consolidate over time. Mm. They're not listening. And then the, the, the riding roughshod over people, those kind of things. Yeah. And, um, and if, some, if you don't have people able to speak in, into your life, then um, you're going to be in trouble. Which, I mean, you mentioned the abuses of sex and money, but that, that right there, is, you might say, is, in a, is one of the side effects of cultivating the love of power a bit too much. Yeah. Not putting yourself in places where you, you are challenged regularly. And it, and it strikes me that with every transitional stage in our lives, we need people to say different things to us. I think in our culture of self-esteem boosting, in our 20s, we need people to tell us, you are not that important, you're not that special. But equally, it can perhaps seem in your 60s, as your life changes again, maybe you approach retirement and a large part of what shaped you has gone, or people join the church and they don't know how brilliant you were in your 30s. And so you Mm. do see that in people, the need to remind people how great they are, and that seems to me that there's a, a different transitional life stage there. I, it, absolutely. And I, I think those, that idea of, of needing to hear different things at different times and for different issues is, is, is what makes relationships so important, you, you know, because um, different people need to be able to speak into our lives at different times. But certainly, um, you know, one issue that, that I've talked with quite a bit about with people is 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 the the way they want to insulate themselves against criticism but equally I often, you often find yourself really wanting to encourage people in the gifts god's given them and um i i, I think again that tool of you need to be confident in the, I, when people say this is they're really blessed they are blessed and you are god's instrument there and you're not a hollowed out vessel. You are a person made in the image of God who is deploying mm. the gifts God's given you in a meaningful way. And it's you who's doing it. Own that sense of, mm. of you, you know, of, of actually um, instrumentality. Of you are making a difference and you are yeah. you. Uh, it just doesn't make you more important. Let, yeah. let God love you anyway. And when yeah. you blow it, he still loves you. And let God love you. as someone made in his image but then out of that deeper security of his love go out and make something of his world and when you do hear him say well done you Mm. did that Mm. was you you know wow Uh, yeah i wouldn't want um i I wouldn't want to have been heard to say that in the in that transitional life stage of perhaps in your 60s that the answer is you need to be told to speak less and to have someone confront you because you're absolutely right it's a transitional time of vulnerability where you need to be encouraged and told you've got so much still to offer the world we just don't the world doesn't need the 30 year old version of you anymore it needs this version the the rich experienced version who's got all of the the gifts that you've got to offer which is a conversation i had with someone previously just about the the church's need 
need from more fathers and more mothers, uh, men and women who know they've got gifts from God and are willing to use them to nurture and strengthen those around them, rather than constantly needing to be sons and daughters um, who are trying to impress their mums and dads all the time, Um, which is perhaps, I mean, maybe I'm just drawing too many threads. You've got me into this world of drawing different threads together, but it's perhaps a side effect of a culture that's obsessed with youth is that when you become old, you have to try to convince people that you're young still and you've still got a lot of the youthful vigour to offer. Whereas actually we don't need your youthful vigour. We need your mm. age and rich experience to help us. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 that's a word for me, you know, um, Jazz. I, I, you know, I, I need to hear that sometimes because I think the cult of youth is, mm. is really seductive. Well, as, I you, think... as you get older, you know, trying to keep up. It's, I mean, your yeah. your books are, are are speaking volumes to that, and I have found them, as I said, as I've pointed out, even being able to quote them better than yourself, <laughs> <laughs> they've made such a big impact. And I think there is that that gift of um, threads that you're able to draw together. Perhaps as we close, why don't you just? Uh, I love how you finished the book with that um, story of John the Baptist um, that I must decrease and he must increase as a healthy antidote to some of the boosterism uh, and the status anxiety that we live with um why don't you just share with us as we draw our conversation on time together to a close why don't you share with us some of the insights that you've you drew out of john the baptist there um yeah um john john is i mean he's a remarkable figure isn't he um in in scripture and the way jesus loved john i, I think we often miss that the greatest the last and greatest of the prophets i, mm. I think and um, you, you do have this really interesting picture of John's disciples looking at Jesus' disciples doing more baptisms than they were. And uh, what, one of the, the things I touch on in the book is this idea of a limited good that we often uh, foster's picture of limited good that, that, that often takes over our thinking in this area, that there's only so much good to go around. or It's a bit like a land land is a limited good there's only it's it's in limited and that means if someone gets more of it you get less of it um and therefore we fight over land Mm. it's a zero something and so they they look at jesus doing more baptism and and they say hang on a minute they're they're doing more we're we're doing less they're becoming more important we're becoming less important and they are heavily basing their sense of calling, significance, worth, and meaning on this sense of numbers of baptisms and, and evidence of their influence and competency out there. And they're saying, hey, whoa, if, if, John, if Jesus disciples are getting more of that status and importance and effectiveness, that, that makes us less. And John speaks directly into that and says he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, he he dissociates himself from that uh, dynamic, that that tendency to to base. If if that's what this is about, he says, you know how 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 much status all of this gives us, then he must increase and I must decrease because that's what this isn't about. What I don't think he was doing was saying, so I'm a worm, I'm a nothing. Um, But he was saying in that sense, in the sense of people valuing and 
effectiveness and success of ministry and so on. Mm. Um, if that's what my life is about, it's all let, let's go back to Jesus and let's derive all that we are from him. Because, of course, in the gospel, here's the magic of the gospel. As he increases, we increase, actually, as he truly increases. We don't we decrease, perhaps in the world's terms, because we give up all to follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, but but actually we increase from the inside out we discover that we're being that God is restoring his own image in us and that image is the image of Christ his own son that in the magic of the gospel doesn't invalidate who we are uniquely it validates it it somehow realizes it this sense of glen is made in the image of God profoundly in the image of Christ and yet more glin not less that that's the that's the beauty of it and when God creates creatures in his image he really did create creatures he didn't Mm. create um, extensions of 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 his own divine self he created beyond himself these these creatures in his own image Mm. and so I, I I think that's where John sends us if it's about status then uh, you know, he must increase. We must let go of that. But the genius there is that God be all that God wow. is loving you and blessing you. Uh, yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And and actually it is part of the, the, the beautiful differences between Christianity and monism or Buddhism is that we don't need to lose ourselves. You know, we're not being absorbed into the yes. into the oneness. Actually, in dying to self we become more fully ourselves and we maintain our individuality but we find it enhanced and you know increased by being part of the three that is the trinity and the godhead so it's such a beautiful richness that i think buddhism doesn't i mean buddhism is very popular or popular buddhism is very popular increasingly so but it doesn't it doesn't people don't often realize that that's what it says is essentially your sense of individuality is an illusion you need to wake up from it's a nightmare Mm. And you wake up for it by being absorbed into the oneness and and losing your sense of self. Whereas mm. as human beings, we say, no, but this sense of self is very strong and very real. And yeah. I don't yeah. think it's an illusion. Um, yes. and, in, and in Christianity, you see, no, it's not an illusion because God is both one and three. And so he is diverse and united. And your goal is to die and find your find your true identity and calling in him. So it's beautiful mm. and it's rich. And thank you so much for drawing that out. Um, well, Glenn, as we mm. draw things to a close, is there anything else that's bubbling in your mind and, the, and heart and head that you'd just love to, to share before we close? Well, um, I've, do you know, it, it, it's a fairly light light thing in, in a way, Jess, but um, you're, this is an, uh, you're part of a New Frontiers network. Is that right? Right. And I just want to say um, that that little um, vignette that I gave earlier of, of um, you know, I may be a great kind of Uno player or a great footballer, but but that doesn't. Um, necessarily um, change my importance. To be honest, I, I was really um, set thinking, and I, I've, I've, I plagiarized this, I'm afraid, a joke I heard from Terry Virgo years and years and years ago, uh, and others may already have heard it because I think it's one of his favorites, but, but it's the joke where you go up to the guy who's played the organ at the end of the service, and you say, wow, that was wonderful. Um, and he looks at you and says, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. And Terry Virgo says, and you say to him, the Lord, 
no, it wasn't that good. You know, I mean, who played the wrong note then? And uh, <laughs> and the guy said, oh, I played the wrong note, you see. And and I've often used that. And, and I say, now, what kind of a, a Lord and Saviour would call his creatures to be the ones who attribute to him all the right notes and to themselves all the wrong notes? Um, no, no, if you play a right note, you do it as the one who bears his image in his strength. But you do it. And I think that that is what Terry is wanting to drive home there, exactly the point you're making. We're not Buddhists. We don't lose ourselves in something called my identity in Christ. As if somehow I, I'm lost and immersed in that. Um, this is a, a, a profound validation of our creatureliness those created in the image of of god and, and called in exactly the way mm. that you say and and i find that really liberating um, mm. and quite wonderful mm. another another one i have heard him tell and he, he may want to go online now and say it's all wrong <laughs> i'm misquoting it is uh, you know when you go into the pulpit and and there's that little thing, sir, we would see Jesus on a little plaque. I think we have it at our church, you know. <laughs> and, and Terry says, uh, and, and I would say, uh, sorry, folks, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's that that great sense of um, of reality. You you know, so let's not. Yeah, it, it's me standing here, but. I do so in, in, in the image of, of God. Now, I'm not here to boost my status. That's true. We want to see Jesus set forth here. Mm. But it is you in the pulpit, Jez, and, and you're, mm. you're doing God's work, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but always um, out of the profound sense of calling and self that God has given us. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Glenn, so for your time. homage to Terry Bell. <laughs> there you go. You're officially <laughs> allowed to be aired now. <laughs> well, thanks again for being with us for today's discussion. I hope you found it helpful. Links to Glynn's books can be found in the description from today's episode. And just to say, as we conclude, that we are currently gearing up for year two of the podcast. And as such, I'm wanting to shift the focus slightly by including more guests from some of our churches. Guests who can come on and talk about how they're working out their Christian life in our various workplaces and other settings. And so, if you would be up for a conversation about what following Jesus in your world looks like, do please get in touch. Or if you'd like to, you know, dob in a friend or recommend someone that we can get in contact do please say. You can reach me by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. That's podcast at newgroundchurches.org. I shall look forward to hearing from you. And with all that said, goodbye, God bless, and until next time, keep pursuing Jesus with everything you have. Bye-bye.